0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Thank you for attending Grace Community Church. If it's your first day, it's an emotional day uh, for us anyway. Maybe not so emotional for you. If you knew Dave Knight in particular then you would say, yeah, it's an emotional day for us as well. So thinking, uh, a couple of things. First of all, how much I appreciate how carefully and well-selected the songs are connected to the text. Every week, Pastor David does such a wonderful job with that. And then the, the team, the worship team and the folks on the computers and the, and, and the uh, soundboard in the back spend a lot of time uh, seeking to do what they do in excellence for the glory of God. So I appreciate that. And then also I was thinking as, as Bert was sharing about Dave Knight. Why do so few people. Why do so few people experience healing. Those who are terminally ill. Well since the fall. It's the way of it. We all die. Whether we live to 96 like Jim Acock did. Just up until a few years ago. Or Whether. Infants, um, all of us die and never assume that death is the judgment of God on someone. Nor is the fact that he does heal some people but not others. When he doesn't heal, that's not a judgment of God on the person or on anyone's lack of faith. It's the way of it. Death is the enemy. It's not our friend. It's the enemy. People can face death well like Dave Knight is facing it well now. But it's no surprise when Christians fight against it and struggle against it. It wasn't meant to be this way in the very beginning. But I especially with the prominence of the prosperity gospel in the world today. I just wanted to say when God does reach down at these late stages and heal someone, suppose he were to heal Dave, it's just a taste of what it's going to be like. And, um, I mean, if God healed him and then later he died, he might be saying, probably like Lazarus said, oh man, what you go and do that for? I mean, I was in eternity before the Father. So, do pray for the night's, And don't let anyone tell you it's your lack of faith or you don't, God's already healed you. You just need to believe. Don't, no, that's not the way it is. Romans 8, remember a few weeks ago? Suffering, it's the way of it. The whole creation is groaning, just waiting for Jesus to return and the sons of God to be revealed in the glory that he has for us Dave's going to get in on that glory, at least partially on that glory, a lot sooner than the rest of us. Well, this past Thursday, I had lunch with uh, two of my pastor buddies, Jimmy Elliott and Dave Brown. And Jimmy uh, said, oh, I'm just so thankful for God's word. Well, Dave and I knew there was more, so we just waited patiently. And he said, I watched the Republican debate last night. And I was just so discouraged with the state of our nation. And then he said, I read in Psalm 60 this morning. And the Lord, I'm so thankful for God's word. Psalm 60 verse 11. Oh, grant us help against the foes. For vain is the salvation of man. Well, that's how I read it in the ESV. But Jimmy read from the NIV, which packs the exact same punch. Maybe even a little better. Give us aid against the enemy. For human help is worthless. We tend to forget this, don't we? I mean, we live in this world. And we want our families to be, at the very least, safe and secure. And so it's natural for us to hope for the best in government uh, that the government We'll have so much, this government that's going to have so much say in our lives. What happens at the highest levels impacts us at the lowest levels. And we want to do everything possible to ensure that our children and our grandchildren will enjoy the same protections and opportunities that we have enjoyed. But as we learned last Sunday, the problem and the trouble with earthly kingdoms is that they're temporary. This morning, we will consider the truth about God's kingdom. Our text is Psalm 2, the second psalm. And if you took really good notes a couple of years ago, this might seem familiar to you. Uh, I don't often, in fact, almost never repeat sermons unless it's something like Psalm 130 or Psalm 103, Uh, Psalm 130, Ricky uh, shared with us earlier this morning, but Our focus on eschatology over the next year or so will have us thinking deeply about kingdoms, especially God's kingdom. In in three weeks, we're going to begin to look at the influence of Daniel and his three friends and the influence that they had on the most powerful empire of the day. As foreigners in a court. I don't mean to denigrate political service uh, by any means. If you were serving in government—local, state, national—thank you so much for your service to our nation. The point is, it's futile to put our hope strictly in human governments. So, what to make of Psalm two? I mean, goodness, when you when when you read Psalm two, it feels like you're reading the opening pages of an account of World War I or World War II. It's one king posturing against another king. And the language here, frankly, is difficult for ears that are attuned to New Testament words of grace and peace and forgiveness of sins. So is it relevant today? Yes, absolutely it is. Psalms, Hebrews, Revelation, they all point back to Psalm 2. Several times Psalm 2 is quoted in the New Testament. Sixty percent of the verses uh, are quoted in the New Testament. After reading the psalm this morning, you might be surprised at just how very relevant and, and such a prominent place this psalm of power and judgment holds in the lives of those know and follow Jesus. So there's a lot to cover in Psalm 2. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And before we bless the word, the reading of the word. Kiss the Son, his wrath is quickly kindled. That was the sense of God before the New Testament. After the cross of Christ, after Pentecost, resurrection Pentecost, Ascension, there seems to be a different spirit. It's still true, but the wrath is easily assuaged in Jesus. So one more time, verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The Word of God for the people of God. Thank you, and be seated. Psalm 2 does not have a title, nor is an author assigned to the text. But Peter said in Acts 4 that David wrote it, and in Acts 13, Paul lets us know that this was the second Psalm, so Psalm 2. It begins with a question that David can't believe he needs to ask, why do the nations rage and the people? plot in vain. If you look, um, we, we find ourselves here in the midst of a real power struggle, and since the psalmist knows it's not a real contest, then he's wondering, why does the question have to be entertained? Why do people rage against the creator and sovereign God of the universe? If you look at the balance of power in this world, you may think that those who oppose God and his people are stronger than both. But the Holy Spirit, through David, will provide perspective that brings truth into focus. The Hebrew word for plot is haga. It means to meditate or murmur, or to growl like a lion, <clears throat> growling over his prey. Um, Eugene Peterson says that the one who meditates, like in Psalm 1-2, he meditates on God's Word day and night. This is the man who is blessed, the one who meditates on God's Word day and night. This man is one who is lost in his religion. You've been there, haven't you? Meditating on Scripture, and you're just lost in the gospel. You're lost in the goodness and the greatness of of God sometimes we're even lost in our own smallness when we consider who God is and then to think that he loves us and sent Jesus for us we get lost in our religion unfortunately the rulers of the earth are lost in their fixed determination verse 2 to attack to attack the lord's anointed the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach, which sounds, not surprisingly, like Messiah, especially when we pronounce it like we do, Mashiach. In the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the New Testament, Mashiach is translated either Messias or Christos, which in the English are Messiah, and the Christ. The readers of David's day understood that every king who was a descendant of David and Solomon to be the anointed one. So the Jews would not see necessarily this as the Messiah, although they became to see this as the Messiah very quickly. Over time, the Jewish people began to look for one who would not only break the bonds of of those who... um, Uh, ruled them or even just to rule over a few nations but a Messiah who would come and conquer the entire world. The New Testament writers made it clear that Jesus was the Messiah to whom Psalm 2 and other Old Testament prophecies were always pointing. From this point forward, we will think of the schemers and rulers in Psalm 2, not only as those who oppose the nation of Israel in Old Testament times, but as those who oppose Jesus in our time, and thus, by extension, they often oppose those who follow Jesus. Isn't it interesting in verse 3 that the very people who deny God's authority in their lives plot to overthrow the shackles that enslave them. They desire to dominate God, even as they deny His very existence. You you hear it today, even if it's not said like this, it's intended. I hate God. I don't believe He exists. So it's like, uh, which is it? <laughs> you know, a God of love would never do this. So I don't believe He exists. But but think of look. If God exists, I don't think we get to tell him what kind of God he ought to be. He is who he is. He's holy. So it's time, after these first three verses, for God to respond. And he does so with laughter. Do verses 4 to 6 bother you somehow? Usually in contemporary depictions of power, literature, entertainment, the powerful ruler who mocks those opposed to him or her with laughter is evil. (laughs) I'm glad you got one, yes, come and experience more of my hospitality. (laughs) I wonder who is invested in such a narrative. If it bothers you that God laughs at those who overthrow Him, then I would suggest that you don't know the depth of your own sin nor the seriousness of rebelliousness against God. And when I say you, I mean we. When we're frustrated, when we're upset with God for this or that, We tend to forget who we were before he redeemed us. If you were a believer, there have been times, almost certainly, when you've come face to face with the horror of your own sins. And it's not a pleasant place until you begin to sense the Lord's forgiveness washing over you when you confess your sins to him. Multiply those feelings of condemnation many times over for those who have not received God's mercy through Jesus. And if they don't repent, it's no wonder that the guilt will drive them to first secretly, then openly rebel against God. God's derisive laughter against the puny efforts of the rebels is bad enough, but it's when God goes silent that really should trouble those who oppose Him. The then of verse 5 indicates a transition, a transition to God's wrath, because he has set his king on Zion in Jerusalem, and the peoples have rejected him. In our time, that means a rejection of Jesus, who is at the center of scripture. Always reads Scripture Christologically. Always. Jesus is always at the center. He's always being pointed to. I mean, you got to be careful. I mean, it's not like, where's Waldo? Where's Jesus? It's kind of like you know that if you don't know the answer to a Bible question, the answer is Jesus. It's not always like that, but Scripture is consistently pointing to Him. When someone says to you, I don't mind you speaking about God, but please don't mention Jesus again to me. Maybe that would be a good time to... Pull them aside and say, May I read the second psalm with you? No, don't say that. Don't do that. I promise you. That would be a bad idea. What you need to do is to fervently redouble your prayers and ask God to be merciful to them and to show you the truth in Jesus in the same way that He showed you your sin and your need for Jesus. It is amazing. Is it not when you think about Psalm 2 and you think about God's holy and righteous wrath. It's right for God to have this holy, righteous wrath against sin. God can no more allow sin in His presence than you could tell your wife. Honey, uh, I met this guy. Um, I want him to stay with us. He needs to get back on his feet. I found out he is a serial killer. There is that. But I'm, I'm just... I think we could help him, you know, if we just, no, it makes no more sense for God to allow sin in his presence than it does for us to accept things that we know cannot be accepted. But to think that the God who has that, who is that holy or other than us, sent his son to die. In our place. And to become sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. We have no conception. Of what those six hours on the cross were for Jesus and the father. When he poured out his wrath. On the son. And Jesus said father if there is any other way. Silence of the heavens shouted God's love for us. If you don't know Jesus, it would be a good time to trust him because God's wrath against sin still exists. But those who are hidden away in Jesus are safe. So far in Psalm 2, we have heard from David and from Yahweh. Now we hear from the Son, who the Old Testament saints would have understood to be the kings of Judah, and particularly the Messiah who was to come as they began to look for a Messiah. We know God's Son, referenced in verse 7, is Jesus. The New Testament book of Hebrews will make this understanding very clear for believers, as will Paul's sermon in Acts 13, and Peter is going to affirm it again in Acts 4. In Psalm 210, the rulers of the word, of the earth are told to be wise and to be warned. Two staples of wisdom literature. In this verse, Yahweh delivers a stern warning, but in his warning lies an invitation. The scripture, as always, says it best, verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's interesting wording, isn't it? Serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen to that. Five points of application. Beginning with, there are only two choices, life or destruction. Deal with it. Now, that's not meant to be harsh or smart-alecky, but clarifying. What if the Bible is true? What if it's true? But I don't think the Bible... Look, I admit it might be true, but I don't... What if it is? One sure way to deny God's existence and salvation in Jesus is to work from the culture and see what's going on in the culture and then try to make sense of Scripture, to work back towards Scripture. The attacks on God, His Word, His Son, and His ways are no different today than when the rulers of the world plotted to defeat the kings of Judah. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you're thinking about walking away, would you just be willing to take the next month and read the Gospel of John, then read the book of Romans. And if you decide not to believe, I promise you, I'll leave you alone. I will continue to try to persuade from here, but I won't bring it up in our conversations. But at least consider the possibility and even pray, God... If you exist please let this scripture come alive to me if this is your if this is really your word let me know second you will be lost in your religion one way or the other choose wisely now you might think at this point I'm continuing the Challenge to unbelievers. There's a little truth in that. But I'm speaking to all of us. We're all going to immerse ourselves in something. This time of year, I'm immersing myself in Bleacher Report and Panthers.com. And I'm ch- keeping up with the Tar Heels too. Until they lose to South Carolina next weekend, And, and then I'll probably quit keeping up with that. But, we're, look, another way of saying this is that we will be religious about something or someone. We will, in fact, be lost in our religion as we meditate on God's word and his son, or we will be lost in something that is inferior to Jesus at best and opposed to Jesus at worst, plotting against his rule. While it's a good thing for us to seek to understand the world and its ways at At some level, we all realize the danger of investing too much time in thinking about the activities and trying to understand why people think the way that they do. Those who oppose God, that is. The Psalms will lead believers to choose to contemplate and exalt Jesus. So thank you, King David, for giving us this Holy Spirit-led warning In Psalm 2, which also serves as an invitation. Brothers and sisters, you will be lost in your religion one way or the other. Choose wisely. Third, it is futile to fight against God's redemptive plan. Exalt Jesus in your life and in the land. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. I didn't even notice it until just now. It's tempting to soften the message of Jesus' sacrificial death with its requirement for sinners to repent and trust in Him for salvation. Why is this difficult? Because those who oppose this message are often actively seeking to suppress and squash the message, which in many times and places means that they will seek to suppress and squash The messengers who share the gospel. Does it seem to you as if those who are the loudest in their calls for world peace often feel the need to silence the talk about the Prince of Peace before they can achieve their goals? Hear this, believer. To soften any point of the gospel is to eliminate the gospel. I lived, as Lee said, in Plumtree, North Carolina. If you don't know where that is, it's halfway between Cranberry and Spruce Pine, So (laughs) it's North Carolina. Um, So uh, from 1978 to 1998, Our family enjoyed two and a half channels uh, for most of those years on the television. Uh, In the late 70s or early 80s, NBC came out with a week-long series called A.D. Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. (laughs) And the story followed the dual track of the Roman Empire, the spread of the Roman Empire, and the spread of Christianity. And perhaps it was my imagination. I just wanted to see this. Look, uh, the attacks against Christianity were just as strong in the '70s and '80s as they are now. Uh, I think they're more serious now. I think the consequences are more serious. But they were, and and television. You didn't hear much talk about God until all of a sudden modernism turned into postmodernism, and we were all touched by an angel. You know, uh, on. TV and other places and then we went from not believing in anything to believe in everything which was really more dangerous than the other I think. But So anyway, this would not be like NBC. It's almost like they wanted to tell the story of the Roman Empire but they kept getting distracted with the spread of Christianity and they ended up saying here's the thing that really mattered Tom Holland came to the same conclusion when he researched Christianity, expecting to find it the culprit of history, but instead found that hospitals, orphanages, soup kitchens, many other mercy ministries originated in the hearts of those who follow Christ. Although Holland, along with all of us, admit that the church has failed spectacularly at different times. Had you been alive in the first century as an objective observer, which do you think you would have predicted to endure? The Roman Empire or the straggly band of Christ followers whom the empire was throwing to the lines and setting aflame on crucifixes to entertain the citizens of the empire? If you had chosen the Roman Empire, you would have been tragically wrong. So, what's the question for us today? Which do you think will endure? One of the political movements such as populist movements, social justice movements, Marxism, democracy? Or do you think Jesus' church will endure? Exalt Jesus in your life and in the land. Fourth, attacks on Yahweh's people are taken very seriously by Yahweh. It's unwise to engage in such futile practices. One of the key differences between the Old Testament and New Testament post-cross and resurrection life is that rather than mocking our enemies and opponents along with God, we are called to pray for and even bless our enemies and forgive them as they are stoning us to death. Who does that? Look, we, tensions between the right and the left are, are rising. We have Europeans with us today. They know about tensions between the right and the left. We, we've got no part of that. That's not who we are. We're not in that fight. You may have political preferences. I do. You may work to see certain policies set in place. I do. But we are not part of world kingdoms clashing with one another. We want to protect our land. Let's keep this going as long as we can. But when it comes down to people... Hating and fighting one another. We're not part of that. The rulers and peoples of this world who plot against Jesus take our humble, submissive spirit, even in the face of death, as a sign of weakness. And that's understandable. You might be tempted to think it's unfair for you to bless others and to share the good news of life when all you receive is opposition. To you, God's word says this, resolve to follow Jesus' commands even when it costs you. Take joy in the increased fellowship that is available to those who suffer well for Jesus. For those who don't know Jesus, if you must refuse his free offer, of grace to you, then just in case this is true, would it not be wise to at least refrain from opposing Jesus and his followers? The father takes opposition to his son very seriously and none of us wants to be in the crosshairs. Even though God saved the apostle Paul and used him to bring the gospel, To its full form, in its full form to us, Paul never got over the ways that he had previously opposed God and persecuted believers. And so, from this point forward, even if you don't know Jesus, don't live with those regrets. Last, there is no refuge from the Lord, there is only refuge in Him. Kiss the Son. And take refuge in him. One more time. What if this is true? You will never know how reasonable the faith is until you believe. The Bible is reasonable. Christianity is reasonable. But you can't reason your way to faith. You must first believe. I know this seems backwards. But it is God's design and there is no way around it. God's message to you is this, kiss the son, as in kiss the the ring of the king and pledge allegiance to him. Kiss the son and take refuge in him. Put your trust in Jesus in him alone. In the warning in Psalm 2, an invitation is extended, but it's true the other way around as well. Within this invitation is a warning. Much is at stake, much more, in fact, than when Psalm 2 was read. How You might think, how can you say that? Well, consider this verse from Hebrews 10 that describes the fate of those who reject Jesus after he has come and died for our sins. What was happening in Rome where the letter of Hebrews was almost certainly written to a church in Rome? It was a group of Jewish believers who were dwindling away because it looked really bad for Christians in the near future. They were going to be persecuted seriously. Not Jews, but but the Christians were. And so they were walking away from Jesus saying, ah, we all worship the same God anyway. Let me go back to the ways of Judaism and I'll just be a good person. I mean, you still got to be good, right? And the author of Hebrews said this, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Kind of has that Psalm 2 feel to it. The point being, after what God has done for us, how can we ignore it? Kiss the son. It means to pay homage or homage to him if you so prefer. What does it mean to take refuge in him? It means to repent of your sins and to believe in him. Believe that his death on the cross was payment for your sins and it's your only way to God. Believer and unbeliever alike. Do you have any idea what a gift repentance is? To come to God and say, oh God, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. It's not easy. But it's a gift. Almost like any other, Acts tells us that repentance is a gift from God. Just think about it. No longer needing to prove yourself. No longer holding on to anger or even... Bitterness over the way life and others have treated you. No longer hoping against hope that at some point your life will have a little bit of meaning. No longer fighting a losing battle that leaves you anything but peaceful. Surrender your heart to Jesus. He will take care of your heart and of your eternal soul. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for giving us the truth. Um, When we are first considering the claims of Scripture, oftentimes that truth is not very pleasant, nor do we like it. But when we yield and give our hearts to Jesus, the beauty of what you've done for us, can never be overstated. We're so grateful for your plan, for your design, for sending your son, the last Adam, to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. May we yet again renew our allegiance to him. And follow with all our hearts. And may we not go forth angrily to proclaim the gospel. May we go forth in humility and with deep love for those who don't know Jesus. And proclaim that he's come and that he is Lord. And that all who will call on his name will be saved. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.